Uh, Congregation, this evening in your Bible, we would direct your attention to the Gospel according to John and to chapter 20 in your Pew Bible. You can find this on page 1,250. We're going to be reading this evening from John 20, uh, verses 24 through 31. Uh, If you remember, uh, last Sunday evening we referenced a part of this text uh, speaking about the things that Jesus Christ had done which are recorded uh, in this book so that we might believe And that's really the topic in Lord's Day 7 of our Heidelberg Catechism, which we'll also be reading, Uh, that is the exercise of true faith. In your Forms and Prayers book, you can find Lord's Day 7 on page 208. So we read first from uh, the very Word of God itself, Uh, this evening as we have it in selection, John 20, verse 24 and following. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, thus far, for now, for this evening, our reading from the Word of God. Now, we turn then to Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which has four questions, the first being question 20, asking, are all people then saved through Christ? just as they were lost through Adam? And the answer, no. Only those are saved who through true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Question 21 then asks, what is true faith? And the answer, true faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word, it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others, but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace, only because of Christ's merit. Question 22 then asks, what then must a Christian believe? And the answer, all that is promised us in the gospel, a summary of which is taught us in the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. And then question 23 asks, what are these articles? And the answer then is the Apostles' Creed, which we have recited uh, again this evening. And so, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have another opportunity afforded to us by the providence of God to consider glorious truths, heavenly realities, glorious and heavenly truths and realities that are of an eternal significance. Uh, Perhaps you learned by memory uh, the answer that is found in Lord's Day 7. Uh, What is true faith? Uh, Perhaps you cannot recite the entire thing from memory, but perhaps you 
can recall that true faith is not only a certain knowledge, it is a certain knowledge, but it's also a hearty trust in Jesus Christ and in His work. And that's what I want to spend our time together this evening, explaining and describing a bit of this wonderful activity which we call true saving faith. And as we describe it, uh, we don't want to describe it in the way that perhaps you might go through a museum or the historical village or perhaps an art gallery looking with some type of passing curiosity upon a relic from some former day. Because true saving living faith is not merely a relic from the Christianity of a former day, but it is the exclusive means by which a person comes to benefit from the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. To summarize John Calvin, uh, he says at one point in his institutes that all of the work of Christ remains of no benefit to us unless we are personally united to Christ by the exercise of faith. And we have sought and we will continue to seek to explain to you as a congregation as best as we can, enabled by the Spirit to tell you who Jesus Christ is and also to tell you what He has done. But all of that remains of no benefit unless a person is united to Jesus Christ through the exercise of faith. And so we want to turn our attention uh, this evening to the contents of Scripture as summarized in Lord's Day 7 underneath this theme, deliverance by true faith. And we'll notice, first of all, the importance of true faith, and then secondly, the benefits of true faith, and then thirdly, the content of true faith. And by true, uh, we have the idea here that this is the real saving faith. This is the act of believing, which Jesus Christ uh, speaks about in John 20. Uh, verses 31. Uh, And over the history of Reformed theology, uh, Reformed theologians have identified uh, a number of different types of faith, false faith, you might say, things that can look like faith, activities of human beings that can look like faith but are not true, are not genuine. Sometimes they, they speak of a temporary faith which is not true saving faith, but rather a temporary persuasion, some type of inclination to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. You might think, of course, of Judas Iscariot. He had a temporary inclination to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, but he did so out of ungodly motives. And the temporariness of his faith revealed itself when he betrayed our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You might also think of Demas, who followed for a time in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but then for the love of the world fell away. And Scripture warns us that there are many who fall away. Not many who have true faith fall away, but many who have this temporary, momentary persuasion or inclination to follow after a form of Christianity uh, when some type of obstacle arises or when they are drawn away by Uh, the love of the world and the lust of the flesh, the temporary nature of their artificial faith reveals itself. You might also think of miraculous faith. 
And this also is not a true saving faith that is wrought or worked by the miracle of regeneration, but a, a temporary and miraculous faith is that which has the belief in the potential of the miraculous to be accomplished on behalf of a person or by a person. And so often we think of Simon the sorcerer in Acts when he saw what the apostles could do with the unique privileges granted unto them as apostles to accomplish supernatural works. Simon was convinced of the reality of those miracles, and he desired that power. He desired that prestige. He had no real interest in Christ, but he did have an interest in some type of benefit that could come upon him in a sensual, temporal sense. And this also is a great danger because it is to be feared that there are those who follow after Christianity for some type of external benefit. Well, we think perhaps most notably of the so-called wealth, health, and prosperity gospel, those who peddle the Word of God uh, to gain some material benefit. But in contrast to temporary and miraculous faith, we seek this evening to describe true faith. Notice, first of all, the importance of true faith as the sole or the only, the exclusive means of salvation and as the saving link to Christ. Uh, Lord's Day 7 picks up with the understanding that all men, all human beings, every single individual human being is lost in a spiritual sense, and it does so uh, based upon passages such as the opening of Romans where the Apostle Paul identifies the lostness of the human race. There is none who does good, no, not one. Uh, we use theological terms such as universal depravity of man to describe this type of understanding, uh, that all are in need of salvation. We say all are in need of salvation, but the question now as it logically progresses in our Heidelberg Catechism, if then there is a universality of lostness, is there also a universality of salvation. Well, thanks be to God, we can say that there is the proclamation of salvation that goes out to all men. But again, if we are going to stand upon biblical truth, we must be clear that not all persons are saved. And this is, of course, in contrast to what is called universalism, uh, whether in the older heretical teachings that proclaimed that all human beings would eventually be saved, whether in this life or whether through some type of purgatorial experience in the afterlife. Uh, there were some who went so far as even to believe that the fallen demons would be redeemed and Satan himself would be saved from eternal destruction. Uh, and there is really nothing new under the sun also when it comes to false teachings uh, of religious teachers, and so perhaps it's wrapped up in modern apparel, but this doctrine, this unbiblical teaching of universality of salvation is rejected by uh, the opening question of Lord's Day 7, not all men are saved. Just let that sink in for a moment. Not all persons are saved. There will be many a soul in hell. Sometimes life can become so busy that we lose a sense of these profound and weighty spiritual truths. Not all men are saved. Well, it's not only universalism, 
but also the false teaching of pluralism. Pluralism, it doesn't go quite as far as saying all men are saved, but what pluralism says is that there are many ways in which to be saved. And if you have a critical ear for the cultural messages that you hear in our day, there are those who cry out universalism, and there are also those who cry out pluralism. And this is especially common among our academic elites within our society, uh, those persons who pretend to have come to a greater understanding of truth when really they have just bought in the lie, hook, line, and sinker. And they say that there are as many ways to be obtaining spiritual fulfillment or spiritual peace. Uh, but this is nothing but a, a lie. For what does our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ say? He does not say that there are many ways to the Father. He says there is one way to the Father. And the one way to the Father is through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Uh, not only universalism and pluralism, but we must also say something about the age-old spiritual danger of presumption. Presumption, to just presume that a person will be saved. And maybe we've done rather well guarding ourselves against the dangers of universalism and pluralism, but then we ought to ask ourselves if we have let the enemy of presumption in the back door while we've been guarding the front door against universalism and pluralism. Uh, what is this presumption? This presumption is that age-old error of many, many, many a Jew, many, many, many a Pharisee who believed that they had eternal security based simply upon some external sign and seal, based upon some historic connection to the line of Abraham. And perhaps the presumption can be qualified by talking about a covenantal presumption, just presuming that because I have been afforded the great benefits of being born to a Christian family, and because I've had the great benefits of being baptized in a Christian church, in a Reformed Christian church, and an Orthodox Reformed Christian church, and because I do this and because I do that, therefore I presume that all is well for time and for eternity. Well, presumption sends people to hell just as quickly as universalism does and pluralism does. And so a word of sober warning to all of us, don't bank on eternity based upon universalism, pluralism, or presumption. There is one way of salvation, and that one way of salvation is through a true living faith. But I want to be clear in the, the second sub-point there underneath the importance of true faith True faith is important, vitally important, but its importance is derived in what it does, not what it is. True faith does not save a person on the basis of that faith. True faith rather saves a person because true faith unites that person in a real spiritual union with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I'd ask you to cross-reference uh, an illustration of this found in the gospel according to Mark uh, and Mark 10. Uh, and the point here is 
that we're trying to draw out is, is that the real importance of faith is what it does, especially as it recognizes who Jesus Christ is and then trust in Jesus Christ. And in Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 46, we simply read, and then we'll make a few comments. Now, they came to Jericho. As he, that is Jesus Christ, as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard a comment, faith comes by hearing. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, now, boys and girls, just imagine a blind beggar. He would have sat by this road most likely for years and years and years. And he had made his meager living by begging for gifts, monetary gifts, as people walked by. So his ears would have been very attuned to people approaching. He couldn't see them, but he could hear them. And now he hears a multitude approaching and somehow, we're not exactly sure, somehow, he comes to know that it was Jesus of Nazareth. But notice that he's just not content with that satisfaction of his curiosity. But notice what he then says. He began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, we don't know the depths of his understanding and his request for mercy, but we notice that he has a certain knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And based upon that knowledge, he then acts in the exercise of faith, and he requests one thing. He requests mercy. Have compassion on me. Have pity upon me. Consider my situation. Consider my lot in life. Consider my needs. Rescue me. Deliver me. And then many warned him to be quiet. Maybe it was the disciples with the same attitude they had toward little children. We're much too busy to be dealing with little children. We're much too busy to be dealing with beggars. We are on an important mission. Maybe it was the Pharisees saying, we are the religious elite of the day. We have questions that we need to test Jesus Christ with. We cannot be bothered. We cannot be interrupted. We cannot be slowed by a blind beggar on the side of the road. Many warned him to be quiet, but notice the response. He cried out all the more. There was a certain bravado in his faith. You want me to be quiet? I cannot be quiet. Because I know my desperate plight, and I've heard that this is Jesus of Nazareth. I'll cry out, Bartimaeus says, all the more and say, Jesus, Son of David. And here's another additional phrase that gives you a little window into Bartimaeus' understanding. Son of David. A royal title for the expectant Messiah. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood in some of these small words, there is an absolutely remarkable testimony of grace and of mercy. Jesus stood still at the cry of a blind beggar. Think about that tonight. A blind beggar. Now, I have to admit, I haven't seen 
many an individual that would fit this category on the streets of Pella. Uh, it, it was somewhat more common in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan era, area. Rather, uh, you know, you, you'll get off the, the interstate and you'll be on an exit ramp and you'll be turning on a street and if there's a, a red light there, uh, there there'll be individuals, uh, usually with a cardboard sign, homeless, out of work, please give money, something like that. Now, there are those who hand out uh, perhaps a few coins or dollar bills. Most just drive by. And I'm not commenting on what you should do. Actually, the law enforcement encourages you not uh, to give in such situations because it's not really that helpful. But my point is, think today how many people just drive by. But Jesus stood still. If there's ever a person here who wonders about the response of Jesus Christ towards humble and penitent sinners, you don't need to wonder. If you sincerely cry out, have mercy on me, and maybe that's all you can say. Maybe you don't even have words to go beyond that. Maybe because of the memory of sins of long ago, maybe of the recollection of hidden sins now, maybe you find yourself in such a spiritual predicament you don't know who to cry out to, but the Son of David, don't doubt his response. Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called then they called the blind man, saying to him, And can't you sense in this narrative the anticipation building? What's Jesus going to say to a blind beggar? The excitement and the anticipation perhaps builds, and he says, Be of good cheer. Rise. He is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? Uh, um, imagine the heart of Bartimaeus. He's asking me what, what he wants. Me? The request of him. The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. And perhaps he, in his Limited understanding was requesting nothing more than physical sight. But of course, his physical blindness in this context was illustrative of his spiritual blindness. And isn't it true that our Lord gives even more than what we know to ask for? And so Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. And so the importance of true faith is seen because it is the sole means of salvation and it is the saving link to Christ. And as the saving link to Christ, it brings the benefits, which we consider in our second point, the benefits, the benefits of the work of Christ. Uh, we speak uh, in theology of redemption accomplished, the historical objective work of the Lord Jesus Christ as summarized in our Apostles' Creed with the steps of humiliation and exaltation. But we also speak then of the subject of appropriation, the actual taking and receiving the benefits which Christ has obtained through his historical work. And the benefits are delineated by our catechism and can be summarized as two. There is the gracious benefit 
of the remission of sins and the gracious benefit of a righteousness of salvation. And it's interesting in God's providence, of course, and how the organic unity of Scripture ties together and how we spoke of some of these matters this morning. And we don't want to be unnecessarily repetitious. Uh, The song of Zacharias, it, it also emphasized the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins. And so there is constantly this note within the gospel proclamation that the primary benefit that comes, uh, the exercise of true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is the free forgiveness of sins. And I want to simply emphasize the freeness, the freeness of the forgiveness of sins, because the forgiveness of sins is not based upon some type of merit that is earned by the individual whose sins are forgiven. And that's also illustrated by Bartimaeus. What does Bartimaeus have to do to receive his sight? The answer is nothing. It's not as if the Lord Jesus Christ gives Bartimaeus a a ten-step program for the gradual restoration of his sight. He simply commands, and Bartimaeus sees. Grace emphasizes the freeness of the forgiveness of our sins, based upon, based entirely upon, resting entirely upon the passive obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Passive not in the sense that He's inactive, but in His sufferings. Jesus Christ, throughout all of His earthly life, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, suffered the wrath, the penalty for the sins of those whom He would forgive. And so those sins are forgiven freely. And yet, if we're honest, isn't there always the lingering doubt that comes and suggests that there has to be something that we contribute? We're we're really not immune to legalism, to some type of works righteousness. And maybe it's in very small, subtle ways. But sometimes we think, well, if I can just improve here or just improve there, then my judicial standing before God, then it will be better. And and maybe you are confronted with the prospect of the end of your life and the entrance into eternity. And do you then wonder, ah, what about the sins of my youth? What about the sins of yesterday? What about the sins of this morning? How will I stand before God? The sins of the Christian are freely forgiven. Freely forgiven. I simply want to proclaim that to you tonight so that your heart might find the experience of true peace. Because I really do believe that this is absolutely transformative in the life of a person. When a person realizes that all of their sins are freely forgiven, because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, well, that'll be a transforming awareness. 
And not only that, there's more. Boys and girls, have you ever had that on Christmas? You know, maybe mom and dad or grandpa and grandma, they they give you a present or two. And then a third or a fourth comes, and you're like, there's more? Well, there's more than just the forgiveness of sins, not as if that's not absolutely wonderful in and of itself, but there is more. There's also the gift of a positive righteousness. Again, based upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The positive righteousness is that there is credited into my judicial account in the throne room of God, so to speak, not only the cancellation of all the sins that are against me, but also then the imputation of all of the fulfillment of the law which Christ accomplished on my behalf. And what we call His act of obedience, all throughout His earthly life, He perfectly kept every single one of the commandments of God, not on His own behalf, not to gain His own acceptance before His Father, for Christ is eternally God. But He did so as our substitute, as our vicar. He did so in our place. And then He graciously gifts unto those who have a true faith in Him all of the positive benefits, all of the positive merits. So that, to paraphrase a statement from our Lord's Supper form, God now looks Upon me, if I have true saving faith in Jesus Christ, God right now looks upon me just as if I had never sinned. And, and just as if I had kept the entire law perfectly. And that is the benefit that flows out of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done in the accomplishment of salvation, that is the entire package of benefits, so to speak, that then is gifted freely out of God's grace to the individual who exercises true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that also then brings us to consider the third question, well, what then does true faith believe? And we find that And our third point, the content of true faith. You know, so often it is asked, well, is that a salvation issue? And and, and my wife and perhaps some of my children will testify that I loathe that question. I mean, you don't ask that in, I hope you don't ask that in other relationships. I mean, imagine the situation of the husband who asks his wife, tell me the bare minimum that I must do in order to maintain our marital relationship. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. We don't ask our God, tell me the bare minimum that I must believe in order to be saved. And yet we can boil it down to the basics. What must a person believe in order to be saved? Is belief in some vague deity sufficient? No. There are many, if not all, although they may suppress that knowledge, who believe in the existence of some vague deity, something greater than I, some grand meta-narrative for the universe. What is necessary to believe? The Word of God. Notice how our confession begins it, and then I want to also draw to your attention how biblical our confession is. So question 22, what then must a Christian believe 
And the answer, all that is promised us in the gospel, notice the emphasis there on the promises of the gospel, uh, and to point out the biblical truth of this question and answer, uh, look at the words that we read tonight from John 20, verse 30 and 31. We'll just draw your attention to verse 31. These, these things which Jesus Christ did are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so we can boil it down to the essential truths that must be gradually as a person comes to a mature understanding, acknowledged, believed, and trusted in. And over the history of the church, these basic essential core doctrines have been summarized in the Apostles' Creed. And you'll notice that when you look at the Apostles' Creed, it's basically structured upon the truth of a triune God, and especially upon the historical work of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And so, yes, the belief in a triune God. Now, we're not implying that an infant has this comprehensive knowledge of the doctrine of the Trinity. Faith matures and faith develops in its activity. But as we mature in the Christian faith, we must come to know and we must come to trust and rely in the one true God who is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so as a church, and as a church family, in our preaching and in our teaching, let us not try to do better in our instruction than these basics. Uh, let us, especially those who are called to teach, emphasize with all that is within us the importance of understanding the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let us set that before our children and our young people, saying, Behold your God. And in that framework of a triune God, uh, let us also then place the emphasis, especially upon the historic work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And how does He take away the sin of the world? Through the Incarnation. We don't need to reinvent some type of a theological strategy for instruction. We just simply need, with all of the energy that we can muster and dependence upon the Holy Spirit, set these truths before ourselves and set these truths before our children and our grandchildren. And if the Lord grants us the opportunity to set these truths before our great-grandchildren, to say, in essence, we have no new message, but that which we have received, that we also give unto you. Behold your God and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then combine that, and especially to uh, the leaders in the congregation and in the homes and in marriages, to combine that with fervent prayer that the Lord would then grant that internal testimony regarding the authority of Scripture alone as it verifies the reality of the Trinity. So that when our children and our young people, when they go off into the world and when they perhaps go off to colleges and universities, no matter what the name on the front of it is, when they are confronted with teachers and teachings that begin to chip away at the foundation of their faith, that they might say with conviction, I believe in the triune God and I believe in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness. And I believe it because I believe the Bible to be truth. That they might then say, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. If I could give, and I can't because it's out of my ability, 
But if I could give our young people one thing, I would give them an unshakable conviction of the authority of the Word of God. Well, we can't give them that, but the Spirit can. And so we can ask ourselves, is that what we pray for? And is that what we then labor for? Not that we can give them that authority, but we can model an honoring of the authority of Scripture. You know, this is what disturbs our soul when you see compromises in areas of plain Christian doctrine. When you begin to hear of people even in the realm of Christendom, even in the realm of the churches, begin to deny clear, basic teachings of Scripture, our souls are grieved because it is the undermining of the authority of the Word of God. And if that is taken to its logical conclusion, then the entire gospel will slip out of the grasp of a person. Because what is a doubting of the Word of God but a succumbing to the age-old lie of Satan hath God really said? Well, God hath really said. You know, there was a story with which we close that an aged saint, and I suppose the story has a variety of different forms, an aged saint was asked by a skeptic about their belief in some of the supernatural within the Bible. And their answer was a wonderfully simple answer. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. In some ways, that's the exercise of faith. Also, as illustrated by Bartimaeus, God said it. I believe it. But now the question is, do you believe it? Do you believe in the Son of David? Do you believe in His incarnation, in His substitutionary death, and in His victorious resurrection, and in His glorious ascension? Well, these things are written so that we might believe, and that by believing we might have eternal life. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we also thank you for the gift of faith, for a true saving faith uh, that unites us unto the Lord Jesus Christ, and that then brings the reception of all of these glorious benefits that can be summarized with salvation. Uh, Father, we know that there are many a mystery about how faith is created within us and how it is sustained within us, and yet you have revealed that which we need to know. We pray then that as we have considered uh, the exercise of true faith, that even by our very consideration of it, the Spirit might bless us in our own activity of faith. We ask this so that your name might be honored and glorified, and that your Savior might be appropriated, and that our hearts might be comforted. For Jesus' sake, amen.